Last year I recorded a series of three episodes about Britain's progress towards the atomic bomb. You can find them in the archive. The first is called John Anderson and the Missed Bus. Well, having watched Oppenheimer last week, I was tempted to go back to the British story of the bomb, which is of course far less well known than the famous Manhattan Project. So first a quick recap of those three episodes that I did last year, and we can take the story onwards. The atomic bomb first became known to be practically possible in Britain. Two scientists, Rudolf Perls and Otto Frisch, a German and an Austrian who had fled the Nazis, were working together at the University of Birmingham in 1940 when they were able to demonstrate that you only needed a relatively small amount of uranium to make one of these atomic bombs. Therefore, it was possible that the thing could be airborne. No point in having an atomic bomb if it's too big to get off the ground and be dropped onto your enemy. But now it was shown to be possible and to be practical. It was no longer just a bunch of equations. And of course this changed everything. Churchill was told the news and so Britain's atomic bomb project was born codenamed Tube Alloys. The Americans, of course, heard of our work, and FDR made it known that they were keen to get involved. But Churchill was cool on the idea. You might think he would have bitten FDR's hand off, but he didn't. Now, we all know that Churchill was very fond of America, so what was the problem? Well, he was advised, badly to be a bit reticent, to play it cool. After all, Britain was in the lead with the atomic bomb. Why should we throw it all over to the Americans, who, of course, at this point, weren't even at war? And that's where the title of my first episode came from, John Anderson and the Missed Bus. John Anderson, um, he of the Anderson Shelter fame, he was now working on tube alloys, and he advised Churchill to play it cool. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And so when Pearl Harbor happened and the Americans were at war and went full steam ahead on the Manhattan Project, Britain has missed the bus. Missed the chance to be right in there, equal partners with the Americans from the start. Kevin Rain's excellent book, Churchill and the Bomb, says Churchill, quote, missed the bus because his advisers chained him to the bus stop. My second episode in the series is called America, Why Won't You Write? And it's about the humiliation Britain subsequently went through in realising its mistake and trying to get into atomic partnership with the Americans. But by this point, there were influential blokes in the USA who didn't want a foreign power getting in on the action, sharing the glory. Chief amongst them was General Leslie Groves. So, Churchill was asked to sort it out directly with FDR. 
all the squabbling and suspicion, all the bigwigs and the chiefs trying to get one over in the other country, let the two top dogs sit down together and sort it out. So, FDR met with Churchill and he agreed. He agreed to let Britain in. Let's be partners. And so the two men drew up the Quebec Agreement, setting out the terms. Now, this wasn't a treaty. It wasn't legally binding. It hadn't gone through Parliament or Congress. But who needs all that bureaucracy? Isn't FDR's word and this gentleman's agreement good enough? As long as FDR is president, Britain has nothing to worry about. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. The new president, Harry Truman, made it known that he was not bound by this Quebec agreement. So there was no chance of being equal partners now. Well, maybe once the war is over, but nope. In 1946 came the McMahon Act, which forbade America from sharing atomic secrets. Even with us, even with their ally, forbidden from sharing them with any foreign power. By this point, of course, Britain had a new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, and he was the one who decided, well, okay, we'll just have to go ahead and make our own atomic bomb. So firstly, we must ask why. Why did Britain feel she needed this new weapon? Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that at this point, 1946, there was no NATO. So there was no guarantee that the Americans were going to stay involved in Europe and offer any kind of help or security if the Soviets decided to attack. Memories of US isolationism were, of course, still very fresh. So we must get this bomb, was the thinking, and get it before the Soviets do. We didn't know at this point, of course, how close the Soviets actually were to getting it, as uh, the spy Klaus Fuchs wasn't uncovered until 1950. Now, Clement Attlee was no pampered aristocrat with little experience of real life. He had served in the trenches where he rose to become Major Attlee. And one of his biographers, John Bew, says that when he was at the Potsdam Conference, to which he was invited by Churchill, he kept hearing the bigwigs talking about rivers and waterways as though they were still boundaries to be heeded by an army. This was outdated thinking, Attlee thought, Because we are now in the age of air power. And air power doesn't care about a river or a sea. He felt this was Victorian thinking. And the establishment had yet to catch up. And so Attlee reasoned that a Soviet enemy wouldn't be halted by the English Channel. Not if they could fly an atomic bomb over it. And so, he argued, the only answer to an atomic bomb on London is an atomic bomb on another great city. He was talking, of course, at this very early stage of nuclear deterrence. There was another reason why Attlee was in favour of the bomb, 
He, of course, was Britain's first post-war Prime Minister, and he saw how drained the country was by the war. And he realised that having atomic weapons would mean that we could cut back on our massive overseas defence budget. But arguably even bigger than that was we need the bomb for prestige. To retain your seat at the so-called top table, you need to have this spectacular new weapon. Now sure, there were discussions at this point about creating some kind of international body to control nuclear energy, and there was pleasant but pointless talk of making atomic bombs illegal. But that all came to nothing. Attlee was particularly aware of how futile it would be to declare the thing illegal. Hadn't the use of gas been declared a war crime, and yet the Germans still used it in the First World War? You couldn't go dashing across no man's land, waving a piece of paper at them, saying, come on lads, be reasonable, we said we wouldn't use this. Before proceeding, um, Attlee did try to take his concerns to the Americans. He wrote to Truman to express his disappointment in the, the very harsh McMahon Act, but the President said there was nothing he could do, his hands were tied. And to be fair, they were. It was now illegal, simply illegal, for America to share atomic secrets with a foreign power. Attlee admitted, quote, We ought not to give the Americans the impression that we cannot get on without them, for we can, though at some extra cost in time and resources, and if necessary, will do so. So he held a cabinet meeting on 25th October 1946, seeking agreement on proceeding with the British bomb project. I turn here to Peter Hennessy's book, Cabinet, and its chapter on the bomb. Two ministers who were present that day stuck a spanner in the works. Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor, and Stafford Cripps, President of the Board of Trade, both raised objections to proceeding with a British atomic bomb. They said the post-war British economy just couldn't afford it. Now, these guys were, of course, big bruisers in the cabinet. And Hennessy writes that it seemed as though they were winning the argument that day. He writes that those who favoured the bomb became jumpy. I'll quote here from his cabinet book. Where was their patron... Ernest Bevan, Foreign Secretary and Strongman of the Atlee Cabinet. At last, he waddled in, apologising for his late arrival, explaining that he had enjoyed a heavy lunch and had fallen asleep. Sensing what was about to happen, he wielded that raw power and personality for which he was famous and routed Dalton and Cripps. Ernest Bevan's Words at that meeting have become famous. You will find them in any book about Britain and the bomb. Hearing that the cabinet might be dragging its feet on acquiring the bomb, he declared, that won't do at all. We've got to have this. We have got to have this thing over here, whatever it costs. We've got to have the bloody Union Jack on top of it. Roy Jenkins went on to describe the the blunt force of Bevan's post-prandial intervention, quote, 
he simply stopped the engine in its tracks, lifted it up, and put it back, facing in the other direction. (laughs) There was simply no doubt about the bomb in Bevan's mind. He later told his official biographer, quote, If we had decided not to have it, we would have put ourselves entirely in the hands of the Americans. That would have been a risk a British government should not take. It's all very well to look back and to see otherwise, but at that time, nobody could be sure that the Americans would not revert to isolationism. Many Americans wanted that. Many Americans feared it, and there was no NATO then. For a power of our size and with our responsibilities, to turn its back on the bomb did not make sense. So there was certainly some discord at that early cabinet meeting in 1946. And so it was not until a later meeting in January 47 that the decision to proceed with the bomb was officially made. So what had changed? What was different about these two meetings? Were there stirring speeches? Secrets revealed, perhaps? No, it was nothing as interesting as that. Clement Attlee simply (laughs) cut Dalton and Cripps out of the 1947 meeting and went ahead without them. So the decision was taken by a very small group and it was taken in secret. It wasn't taken to full cabinet, certainly it wasn't taken to parliament. Regarding the, the secrecy, keeping it secret from his very own cabinet... Clement Attlee later said, quote, I thought that some of them were not fit to be trusted with secrets of that kind. The news was finally announced to Parliament uh, the following year, in May 1948. But even then, it wasn't dazzling front-page news. I found it tucked away on page four of the Times for 13th of May of that year, with the very calm headline, Atomic Weapons for Britain. The news had been revealed via a question asked in the House of Commons the previous day, where the Labour MP for Winchester asked the Minister of Defence, quote, whether he was satisfied that adequate progress was being made in the development of the most modern types of weapons. The Minister replied, yes. He said research and development is receiving the highest priority in the defence field and all types of modern weapons, including atomic weapons, are being developed. The MP for Winchester asked, could the minister give us any further information on the development of atomic weapons? The minister answered, no sir, I do not think it would be in the public interest to do that. Peter Hennessy suggests in his book Cabinet that this was a planted parliamentary question, allowing the government a smooth way to get the news out without fanfare and statements and big announcements. And so that is how the British bomb made it to the newspapers, or at least the project to build the British bomb. It was very understated, very (laughs) underwhelming, very British, you might say. So thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, little peek into how Britain's bomb project was started. 
We'll continue the story next week. And can I remind you all that my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, went out on Radio 4 last week. It was chosen as Book of the Week, and 15-minute extracts were read every day. If you didn't catch it on radio, you can get it all now on the BBC Sounds app. Free to sign up to that, obviously. It's the BBC. Uh, And I've been told by listeners that even if you're overseas, you can still access it. So check out the BBC Sounds app and then just search for Attack Warning Red and you can listen to it there. And if you like it, you can, of course, buy the book or ebook or audiobook. I should add that the audiobook is narrated by me, whereas the Radio 4 Book of the Week extracts are narrated by an actress, Jasmine Hyde. And let me thank my newest patron who signed up last week, Marley McLeod. Thank you, Marley. I appreciate your support. We also now have a cover for the paperback version of the book, which will be out in April of next year. Previously, if you signed up to the top levels of my Patreon, you were able to get your name in the hardback of the book and also a free signed copy of the book. Well, if you sign up now, of course you can't get into the hardback, that's been published, but if you sign up now to the higher levels of my Patreon, you can get your name in the acknowledgement section of the paperback and I will also send you a free signed copy of the book when it's out. Please take a look at my Patreon if you want to support the podcast. You can do so from £1 a month. That's at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And I thank you for listening. <laughs>